Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this week's performance of My Favorite Flop. At this time, we ask that you turn up the volume on all cell phones, laptops, and car stereos as loud as possible. And now, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Ladies and gents, we are back in business with our 11th episode, the 11 o'clock number, because ladies and gentlemen, we are actually taking an intermission after episode 12. So wait, would that make it the 11 o'clock number, Christina? Well, if it's intermission, then that would make it the 915 number. Okay, well, episode 11, <laughs> the 915 number. We're going to go with it. <laughs> um, uh, so Christina, how are you doing? What have you been listening to this week? I'm doing pretty good. And I've been listening okay. to Anne Juliet. Ooh. I know. I love this show, but I was inspired to listen to it this week because David Bedella, who plays one of the bit roles in Anne Juliet, it has like the best number in the show, in my opinion, okay. uh, also was a part of a significant production of the show we're going to talk about today in Ooh, today's staying episode. on brand. So you're going to actually have to tell me a little bit about Anne Juliet because shockingly, this is a musical I don't know yet. Okay. Um, it's a little complicated and because I haven't been able to like actually see the show in full, I'm not completely sure what the through storyline is. Okay. Um, but basically it follows two storylines. It follows um, Anne Hathaway and Shakespeare and their relationship as he's writing Romeo and Juliet. Okay. Uh, so Romeo and Juliet also are like all the characters for Romeo and Juliet are characters and they're like trying to figure out what their story is and so it, it's really fun but it follows a bunch of like 90s and early 2000s pop music with some contemporary pop music trickled in there okay um, like there's a backstreet boys number yes of please course. and thank you I mean. um david Badella's number is teenage dream and he does it in a French accent okay. and uh, he sings it to um, the nurse. And so the two of them have this epic duet that's a mashup as well. And speaking of, the mashups in this show are spectacular. Wait, like the way that they do some of them is so good. Wait, so actual pop songs, like not new. Act okay, like actually no. Teenage Dream by Katy Perry. Yes. Oh, okay. Like wow. Jesse J's Domino is in it. Oh, um, wow. Backstreet's back, except it's boy band's back. Okay. Is back. And uh, there's a bunch of other ones. Uh, there's Oops, I Did It Again. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I like some great Britney, which I think is hilarious because there's actually pre-COVID, there was that Britney Spears musical in development. I think so, it's still happening too, but hopefully. I'm sure it is. Fingers crossed. Uh, but the Anne Juliet features music by Max Martin, originally written by Max Martin. And then the score and all of the new orchestrations and, and uh, music supervision was done by Dominic Fayacaro. I hope I said that right, Dominic and Bill Sherman. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. And so it's great musical theater twist. So much fun. And because you know all those songs, you're just like belting your face off of the car. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really a fun show. So, Bobby, what have you been listening to? Well, so I've been listening to an off-Broadway show I saw three times when I was in New York. Whoa. And it was something that I think I got comps to the first time, and I loved it so much that I dragged anybody who would be willing to go with me back to it. Uh, but it's a show called Triassic Park. Now, you, know, you look so confused right now. Uh, <laughs> Triassic Park is a musical that's kind of like 
if Wicked did Jurassic Park. So it's Jurassic Park from the point of view of the dinosaurs. What? Yes. (laughs) And with a queer twist. So that's why there's a cue. Uh, Because if you paid attention to that little animated thing at the beginning of the movie, Jurassic Park, uh, there's that whole bit about how all the dinosaurs in the theme park are female, right? Uh, And they did that so that they wouldn't breed and they could control the population, population of the dinosaurs. Um, yeah. But the problem was, is there's that whole like bit, the chaos theory. I think it's the Jeff Goldblum where, well, nature's always going to find a way. And, um, you know, there are species of reptile. This is real in the world that if there are too many females, some of them will grow male body parts so that they can reproduce with each other. And so this is the plot of <laughs> Triassic Park, the musical, uh, told okay. from the dinosaur. <laughs> dinosaur's perspective and so the cast is played by male and female actors but at the start of the show they are all technically female um and slowly over the course of the events of the show some of them become male and there's like oh no the lead was not made in the lab he was created by real life and um they like they praise to the lab as god and their god the lab brings them the sheep or the lamb or whatever it is that they eat on the chain sci-fi meets musical theater it was like the most fun the most fun i've ever had and it was the most ridiculous thing and there were magical songs like uh, Velociraptor in a Cage. And it was very tribal, too. I don't know. You're like really confused. I'm going to play it for you. And you're either going to really want to star in this, Christina, or you're going to be like, Bobby, please don't ever mention this again. Uh, (laughs) But Triassic Park. That's what I listened to this week. I'm so happy you brought that to the table. I'm so happy I got to as well. <laughs> All right. Well, so we should we should jump in with our clues, right? Yes, that sounds good. Because we have a really exciting show on this episode. Uh, really beloved show. I would say probably not since we did Smile. Has there been a show that's going to touch the... Heartstrings of flop nerds everywhere. Absolutely. People love this musical. So, uh, Christina, I think you are up to start with clue number one this time. Oh, I am. Here we go. Clue number one. We gave this at the end of last episode. Songs from this musical were released as music videos on VHS four years before the show opened on Broadway. Which was followed by clue number two on Twitter, which were lyrics to the ABBA song, I am an A. (laughs) and then photo clue on instagram oh this one was good meryl streep in the mamma mia movie so good uh which was followed by my blog post clue number four uh which was five musical flops written by pop stars that's a good one okay and clue number five first set on this episode murray head josh groban whitney houston and the A-teens have all covered songs from this musical. That is a wide range of humans. Right. But I feel like A-teens should absolutely give it away. And if not, drum roll, please. <gasps> chess! <laughs> okay. So before we jump into the magic of chess, like I said, people love this show. Christina, why don't you uh, why don't you tell the listeners what this musical is about? I don't know. I saw it twice and I still have no idea what it's about. There it is, folks. Uh, I feel like a lot of people might actually say that uh, if you if you pinned them down to be like, so what exactly is chess about? Yeah, I would say that the basic overview is that it's about chess. 
the yes, game. That happens. Um, and uh, America versus the USSR, aka Russia, and Russia manipulation. Now. And there's also a uh, three way romance thrown in. So it's kind of like chess on the board game, but chess in real life, too. Yeah. There's like espionage and backstabbing and all the good, juicy things, except I still have no idea what the show's about. Okay. So this is a very. I won't say timely musical, but it's a very timely period piece. Like it mm -hmm. really is of its time. So maybe before we jump into talking about the musical itself, we yeah. should kind of paintbrush what the world was going through uh, during the development of this show, because that obviously speaks to why it was written, right? Yeah, I completely agree. It was definitely one of the main reasons why it was written. It really played into the success and failure in certain parts of the world. So normally on our show, My Favorite Flop, we only cover the year or the year leading up to a show. But I think today we're really going to talk about a broader spectrum. Uh, so this was towards the end of the Cold War. This is during Reaganism. Um, and for anyone who doesn't know, Ronald Reagan was president at the time. And his whole goal was to shut down the Cold War. Right. And his way of doing that was the Reagan Doctrine, which basically said, I'm going to give money and resources to these poor countries that Russia is trying to influence so they can fight back and we can basically force Russia to negotiate with us and end to the Cold War and the nuclear right. conversations. Uh, you had the big changeover of Russian leaders, which I think Reagan was also trying to capitalize on right. to try and um, make sure that he could do as much manipulation as possible during a week time in the changing of the guard, so to speak. Um, right. There was a lot going on um, that made the world feel really unsafe and questionable um, and really played into people's fears. Which very much plays into what's happening in this musical. Right. Well, in the bulk of it, you know, the bulk of the concept album, which we'll get to in a bit, was written in 1983. So right in the, the heat of all of this kind of bubbling up. And then as their transition from concept album to full-fledged musical first in London, that's all happening in 1985. So this is the world that is influencing the direct writing of this musical. You know what right. I mean? Um, the, you know, certain parties have been working on it longer than that, but physically putting pen music piano to paper this is the world that is existing and it's also interesting because the three people who wrote it uh were also not american and they were not russian and so it was kind of a little bit of an outsider point of view i mean they all definitely came from the western world tim rice you know the lyricist and bjorn and benny from the uh, you know hit pop band abba uh were these three collaborators on the project so again not American, not Russian. So they're kind of this outsider perspective watching these things going on uh, and dramatically writing about them. Yeah. Yeah, completely. I mean, pre the concept album, Tim Rice was actually inspired by the first chess game he ever saw on television, right? Yeah. And that was all the way back in 1972. And that was famously, you know, American chess master Bobby Fischer, famous, right. famous, famous, uh, against Russian chess master uh, Boris Spassky. And it was televised in 1972. You know, Tim Rice was fascinated with it. It, um, you know, in the 70s, there was already, it was still a lot of this conflict between the East and the West, Russia, or the USSR and the United States uh, that it existed from the 1960s, you know, 
uh, going back to the Cuban Missile Crisis and things like that. And so he was seeing all of these worldwide events that were kind of looming over this big televised chess game. And, you know, as early as, you know, the early 1970s, he thought it would really make a fascinating idea for a musical. But it wasn't until the end of that decade that he really started work on it after the success of Evita. So we, this is kind of cool because we get to piggyback a little bit. We talked about By Jeeves. By Jeeves was what happened after Superstar. Tim Rice famously dropped out of the project because wasn't his thing, began working on Evita. Uh, him and Angela Weber had a huge hit with it. And after Evita was a hit again, you know, they sat together and they they were like, what should we work on next? And they each brought wildly different things to the table. You know, some of the things that Tim Rice was interested in were either this musical about a chess match during the Cold War or physically a musical about about the Cuban Missile Crisis. You know, oh, um, wow. Kennedy meeting Khrushchev like that was also an option. And, um, you know, with the chess concept, he so Tim Rice was married to a woman named Jane, but it was no secret in the world or in the industry that over the course of the events of Evita, uh, he started having a relationship with its star, Elaine Page. So it was a big deal to Tim Rice to write a project for Elaine. And um, Andrew Lloyd Webber felt really uncomfortable with that. Uh, him and his wife, they were friends with Jane, and he did not want to work on a project that he felt um, gave credence to the affair. You know what I mean? And sure, so he was yeah. like, not into it. So Android Weber went off with cats and, you know, Tim Rice began looking for other people to work on the chess project with because it's something he was so passionate about. Um, well, and once they once he found his collaborators, he, they created a concept album to garner interest. Right. Um, as we've mentioned, this is a super complicated plot. And I think that they were still trying to decide what the story was that they were trying to tell. And so to garner that interest and to garner um, some money, they did the concept album, which ended up like going to the top of the charts. Some of those songs. Oh, absolutely. Well, and so just to show how not complete chess was at that time, when they when they finished this concept album in 1984, the two lead characters didn't even have names yet. It was literally <laughs> the American the Russian. <laughs> and I think they had they had officially recorded enough material to make three LPs, but we're like, wow. no one's going to buy a three LP like cast album. Right. So they condensed it down to two. They put in this synopsis that doesn't make sense if, if you read it. And it tries to fill in all the gaps between the songs. But uh, yeah, that cast album. Did you know it sold over two million copies when it was uh, released? That is crazy. And I think that, and then eventually hit three million worldwide. And at the time, it was the most successful musical theater cast album ever made. So wow! But the reviews for that album too. I think it was like um, either Variety or Time Magazine that said it was the most like intricate and just um, intelligent rock score that had ever been written for the theater. You know. Yeah. And it's funny you call it a rock score because there are certainly elements of it that are rock and roll. But then there are these other elements that are completely choral. And it feels like I'm in a giant concert hall listening to like the Mormons men's choir or something like that's what it feels like in some of those choral sequences. Oh, absolutely. I don't think until Les Mis did we see anything that even incorporate like because you think 
And Juliet Weber shows are these big rock operas, right? Mm-hmm. And even Phantom of the Opera is big. And of course, when you hear it with the Philharmonic or a symphony, it is a big score. But I think chess actually feels more like an opera than Phantom of the Opera does. Oh, completely. I mean, so after the concept album is when they got the money to open it in London. And when they opened it in London, it was actually sung through with very oh, yeah. minimal scene work. Oh, um, yeah. And it was an operetta. It was a rock opera. Um, and it is definitely, which is, it's funny that we keep using that word opera with this show, because I felt like the only way that the average Joe off the street, just walking in, not knowing anything about the show would be able to follow it is if like in operas where they have this synopsis and like an explanation of each scene, that would be the only way to follow it is if they had that in the program. Um, but in London, it ran for three or four years. It yeah, was very well, successful. And shockingly so, too. So they get this album, right? And uh, the Schuberts in the United States, uh, you know, Bernie Jacobs, Bernard Jacobs, who is one of the people who are running the Schubert organization, he says that this is the best Broadway score he's heard since My Fair Lady. Okay? Mm-hmm. So that's a big deal. And so they jump on it. And at first, there's a thought they're going to do it straight to Broadway. You know, they're going to skip the London thing. But um, Broadway shows are more expensive to produce. That's true even today. And yep. so they could do it cheaper in London and still spend all the money on it. But, um, you know, it was and meant it to... was expensive. In oh, London. absolutely. I think it was originally budgeted at two million pounds. Uh, the director a very famous one that they ended up hiring, uh, pushed the budget to four million pounds for the London opening, which was gigantic at the time. Um, and that director was, Christina? It was Michael Bennett. Michael Bennett, which... Oh, Michael Bennett. Okay, so Michael Bennett comes on this project. And Michael Bennett, for those of you who don't know, but you should, uh, was the director, person who conceived a chorus line Um Famously, the gentleman who also made Dreamgirls an international, you know, epic success, not only with the way he helped workshop and develop the material, but the way he staged it almost like a movie. You know, people who saw the original production of Dreamgirls, they say that no other production has lived up to it, even by doing the same, you know, book and score because of just it's missing Michael Bennett's eye for how that show was constructed physically on top of everything else. And so there was this anticipation that this was going to happen with chess. And obviously, well, and his original plans for chess um, in terms of the way the stage would be built. I mean, he had a crazy multimedia set planned that bits coming up and out of the stage and that moved. And like, really, if he based on what I've read, it sounded like he was going to stage it like the people were the chess pieces. Oh, yeah. The stage itself was supposed to have six hydraulic lifts. There were supposed to, I think, be 128 video screens that could fly in and out at all the different places and giant multi-magical chess pieces. And Well, the thing is, is like in contemporary Broadway, that seems completely normal to a certain extent, right? Like still fantastical and something I want to see. But that seems like, yeah, of course they're doing that. But we have to remember this is 1985. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Flat screens were not a thing. LED walls, not a thing. No. And all of this was to be computer operated. I mean, what computers even existed in 1985? Like, 
I mean, Apple twos, like, yeah, (laughs) Um, it would have been epic. And I actually read somewhere that it ultimately cost uh, 12 million. Oh, wow. Okay, which is crazy. (laughs) When another fun fact is so to show everybody. So he's working on this project through 1985, uh, getting ready for them because they're going to open in 1986 in the West End. He built a forty thousand dollar pound replica of the set that could do all the things. And so (laughs) Michael Bennett is like bringing the creative team and the producers and all of this with little people. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and like the set has six hydraulic lifts and these little TV things. That's amazing. And, uh, apparently like showed everybody just what start to finish kept doing run throughs of the entire thing because that's how they that's how they were on the diorama on the, the set. Yeah, the mini. Oh, set. my gosh. So it's kind of crazy. That's apparently how he was helping Tim Rice and Bjorn and Benny finesse from cast out al- or from concept album to show is like, let's do it on the set. Like, how are we going to tell this story? Not only physically, like with words and music, but how am I going to tell it here? So visually, visually. Yeah. And then very sadly, he goes to take his Christmas break in 1985. Tim Rice leaves for the Christmas break to finish this book for the show. Everyone's expecting to come back in January of 1986. And Michael Bennett doesn't come. Yes, unfortunately, Michael Bennett had contracted AIDS and needed to step back to take care of himself. And so because of that, now this is also after the show has been fully cast. They've already started to build some of the set, Mm -hmm. this elaborate set that he's created. I mean, they they were coming back in January to go into a two month rehearsal process to then open the show. Right. Um. And uh, so they then got Trevor Nunn to come in and finish, which there seemed to be, Bobby, you probably can speak more to this than I can, but there seemed to be a lot of drama around him being the one to take up the mantle in the sense that he is such a realistic director. He likes things being more um, contained. He likes... He, even though what he stages is very cinematic, it's cinematic in a subtle way and not in this fantastical way that was in Michael Bennett's mind. Well, you know, I I think if Ryan Murphy is listening, like the drama behind the scenes on chess would make a fantastic like miniseries (laughs) a la Feud or Verdon, Fosse Verdon, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because so Angeloid Weber and Tim Rice, 1979, can't come to an agreement on the project. Angeloid Weber doesn't want to do chess because it would validate Tim Rice's affair with Elaine Page. So Tim Rice goes away. Andrew Weber says, I don't need no collaborator. I'm going to do Cats. Problem is, is there's not enough material in the book by T.S. Eliot of poems about the kitties to do a full musical. So there is a need to bring in a lyricist. And so for Grizabella's big 11 o'clock number, they realize they need someone to look at some notes by T.S. Eliot and write a song. So Andrew Weber's like, hey, buddy, want to write these lyrics for the song. And Tim Rice is like, no, I'm not interested in that. However, very shortly after, um, Judy Dench, who is playing Grizabella, tears her Achilles heel and is leaving the production. Oh. And the role is offered to Elaine Page. And, and all of a sudden, Tim Rice is like, well, if my girlfriend's starring in the show, I'm going to write those lyrics. And so he writes a full set of lyrics to memory that Elaine Page is in love with. It's one of the reasons she agrees to do the show. Right. And 
by the time Tim Rice turns them in, Trevor Nunn is like, well, I already wrote my own version of the lyrics. And because Trevor Nunn, again, pieces, <laughs> is the director <laughs> of Cats. And so there's this battle during previews because Elaine Page does not want to sing Trevor Nunn's lyrics. She wants to sing Tim Rice's lyrics. So depending on one night you watch the show, you may have heard one person's lyrics, might have heard the other. There are reports that sometimes she sang half and half. I mean, choices. Choices until eventually Trevor Nunn's like, no, I'm the director. We're using mine and I'm right. going to make millions of dollars from this song, which ended up happening. So there was a little bit of bad blood between the two of them. And he was kind of a hot deal. Uh, you know, not that Bennett wasn't, but Cats was a huge success. Right. Uh, in 1984, Starlight Express was a huge success. And this is on top of the huge successes Trevor Nunn had already had with the Royal Shakespeare Company uh, and Nicholas Nickleby. We've mentioned that right. on a previous episode as well. And so Trevor Nunn basically coming to the rescue brokers this ridiculous deal with um, the Schuberts uh, to have a shortened rehearsal time. He's allowed to make changes. And he gets a revival of Nicholas Nickleby in the United States. You know? Uh, that, so, yeah. So he comes in and uh, not the same kind of director that Michael Bennett is. And... No. And they he makes a lot of changes to the set and um, pairs it down a lot, which right. I think, you know, ultimately for cost reasons was probably a smart idea uh, to a certain extent. And he keeps some of the elements because they were already in existence. So right. um, a lot of the TV monitors were still involved. Um, and then there was some hydraulics, just not as much as Michael Bennett had originally envisioned. And he he definitely brings it to a more, I don't want to say grounded, because it still was a confusing plot that didn't really make a ton of sense. Right. Um, especially in this first incarnation of the show. Um, and like we mentioned earlier in the episode, it was completely sung through while it was in London. But when they took it to Broadway, Trevor Nunn decided the show needed a book, which was completely not the original concept. Um, and the thing about the Broadway production was instead of all the hydraulics and the, you know, the TVs and the stuff, all of a sudden they had these spinning, they were basically pyramids on their ends and they would turn as people would come in and out and they kind of looked like a chessboard behind them a little bit. Like yeah. That seemed like that was like half the concept. Um, but it was just messy and the added book didn't add anything to the story. Um, it did rearrange the songs into a closer version of what we now know as the show, what is now licensable. Right. But they definitely... <laughs> I still don't understand why in the Broadway production, they're like, you know what? Svetlana doesn't need to sing except in the trio. And I know him so well. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just let her sing that. She's not in act one at all. Right. She only comes in halfway through act two instead of singing someone else's story, which and someone else's story was still in the show, but it went to Florence. Right. Well, it was written for Judy Kuhn. Like. Because right, but it, Trevor Nunn wanted her to have another song. And she's amazing, but it doesn't make sense for her character. Right. Like, it's written about a scorned woman by her husband. Like, that is exactly what those lyrics are. You know, I, it's, yeah. So it opens on Broadway with this book, right? And yeah. it's a book musical. They retain a lot of the songs, but they cut a lot of the recessive. So it makes some of the transitions. You know, I was reading some... um reviews from the Broadway production. It was like, you know, so much that was exciting on this concept album of this rock opera 
as standalone songs, people are like, you kind of lose the impact. And I mean, it's so well crafted what they wrote musically that, yeah. you know, and speaking of one of the moments that Broadway totally gets wrong is that someone else's story, that whole Freddie versus Florence uh, recessive, you know, with the 1956 Budapest is rising, you know, and it builds up and then she's like, why'd you have to do this to me? Should go into nobody's side yes. on Broadway. It goes into someone else's story, which is the ballad Confused. ballad. And you're like, wait, why is this happening? And musically, it feels weird. And I don't know. It, no, you're completely right. And it also so we mentioned at the top that the show doesn't know what it is right. quite yet. Like, what story are we focusing on? So this speaks to a larger problem with the show. Right. We do not know who the show is about as the audience. We don't right. know who to root for. We don't know who our protagonist is. We don't even know who our antagonist is, to be completely right. honest. And the I Want song, at least in what is now available, is um, an Anatoly's song. And it's at the end of Act One. Right. And I Want song needs to come at the beginning of the show so we know what the show's about. Right. Like that right. gives us perspective. It gives us a follow through. We know where we're trying to get to and do we achieve it? Um, and that doesn't exist. And right. in the in the Broadway production, they were like, like you said, we're going to make Florence our focal character, except but not like, completely. Like, yeah. Except An Anatoly like has this whole like struggle about like being Russian and wanting to defect and all of this stuff. And and then like Freddie also felt like he was the focus because he's the first leading character that we see on Broadway. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He's the well, first he one who enters stage. He's the first one who commands the stage. So I'm like, OK, so this is my main this is my main character. Right. right. But it's very confusing. So, Bobby, what do you think the show's about? Like, how would you. How would you describe it? I've I've given my point of view. I mean, I'm going to go full anyone can whistle with this. I mean, I think it should be about Florence. She's the interesting character. She's the only sympathetic character in the entire plot of the show. And she even when they beef up her her role, it's never it's never portrayed that she is the one you care about. She is not given the correct moments in chess as a piece to allow that to happen because you know, the U.S. the U.S. production, which a lot of people hate the Broadway version, um, yeah. you know, and for the longest time in the United States, you could only license that. So there was a weird licensing issue where you could rent in Europe and the rest of the world, the London production sung through, which a lot of people thought worked better, even though it wasn't perfect. But in the United States, you had to rent the Broadway production, which had its flaws. But um, the U.S. production does get a couple things right. In the London production, there's two chess matches for some reason, and the second one doesn't even have Freddy in it. So it's like, what's going on here? Or wait, doesn't have, yeah, it doesn't have Freddy. He's not in the second match. No, um, he's not. In the American production and a lot of productions that have happened after it, it's the same match, it's just in two parts, you know? And my issue with that is because of the, the timeline of the story, like then I'm like, but that's not how a chess match works. Why are you going to different cities? Well, Why are you going to different countries? And they're <laughs> yes. like six months apart. I mean, so some productions have fixed that by setting the entire thing in Bangkok or setting the entire thing in a completely different country that's never been in the show before. Aye, aye. <laughs> um, I actually I have to say, I actually like that it's two separate matches. Okay. And it, it does make sense to me, at least 
the way that they've adjusted it for now, uh, right. if we've watched the London concert version, right. is that uh, Freddie retires because he is so badly beaten by Anatoly that right. he is humiliated, right? Like that I understand. I understand why you have retired. I also understand why you come back as a commentator so you can get back at the guy who That's destroyed true. you. I'll give you that. Right? I was about to say, like, why then why he's, he's still on the show? <laughs> but that was but. the only bit that made sense to me. The rest of it, I had no idea why anyone was fighting so hard. But so then, so then if that's the case, then Anatoly is really, the way they wrote the show, I think he's supposed to be our antagonist. I think we're supposed to feel for the fact that I think he's a proud Russian man you know, but not proud, a proud Soviet. So. But again, they don't set up why it's so terrible for him. Why is it so terrible that he wants to defect and leave his family? Like, right. we're not just talking about defecting and trying to get your family out because it's bad. And in, in the Soviet Union, he's like, I'm going to leave them. Right. My two children and my wife. I'm going to be like, you can stay there. I'm going to go live it up in the U.S. Right. And like, so. That uh, doesn't ring true to me. Like, where? Why is that so important? Right. Is he? Is the government going to kill him because he knows something? Like, there could be. It could be a simple change as to just giving a reason as to why Anatoly is so important to the Russians. Right, and it's not there. And it doesn't exist. No, and and so then you get the the really simplistic. Well, he's leaving because he's in love with Florence. <laughs> Um, but he wants to defect before he even meets Florence. Yeah, they set no, that up. Absolutely. So it's really it doesn't know where it wants to where it wants to go. And I'm trying to quote a lyric from the show, and it's just it's lost on me. <laughs> um, but where I want to go and who I want to be, and there's a, there's a song that's technically his "I Want" song. I, it's it a is. bad example of it, but and he's he ends Act One, so that to me says that that's who our protagonist is. But then Freddie gets the 11 o'clock number, like pity the child, which, to be fair, has moved in the show so many. So is nobody's side. I mean, it's like yeah. they can't decide where they want these songs. Well, to and go. that's the thing is they've written some incredible songs. I mean, nobody is on nobody's side is the lyrics to that. If you like sit down and actually listen to them. And I didn't catch most of them when I first heard Elaine Page's version. Right. Because she oversang the whole song. Sure. But the minute I sat down and actually read through the lyrics, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is the most stunning song I have ever had the pleasure of listening to in the sense that I now knew what the song was about. I now knew what those incredible lyrics were. And no, everyone, at least the couple of um, productions that are that have cast recordings that I've listened to, they just oversing it. Oh, absolutely. They completely well, oversing it. Because lyrically, it's so important. I mean, I, look, I would never say that Tim Rice is Stephen Sondheim, but he is a he is a very good lyricist. We've stated yeah. that before. And, you know, by chess, I think he's really refined and perfected his craft. And he's mm -hmm. playing in the way that Sondheim absolutely plays in the shows later in his career. But in Nobody's Side specifically, it's like, She's talking about chess, but she's talking about her relationships with these men and she's yeah. talking about the world and she's talking about politics. And it's like she's also talking about what she wants, like yeah. why she decides to go on this journey. Oh, and you lyrics know? like I see my present partner in the imperfect tense and I'm like, 
gosh, I just... Oh my gosh, so many layers, right? So much to play with as an actor. And it's funny because Tim Rice... He did an interview after Broadway closed because Broadway closed real quick. Right. Um, And he did an interview and I have a quote from it. I became disillusioned with theater. Chess is as good as anything I've ever written. Maybe it costs too much brain power for the average person to follow it. Right. Now here I will say he's not wrong, but that's mostly because the story isn't clear. Right. The lyrics, however, are some of the smartest lyrics I've ever heard. That really speaks to the issue with the show. Oh, absolutely. Well, and musically, too. I mean, when I think of ABBA, obviously, I think of Mamma Mia because (laughs) I... I mean, but, you know, I think of ABBA as a band as well. And ABBA has really great music. It is bubblegum pop, uh, but they are really great songwriters. But what Bjorn and Benny did with this score, I -hmm. mean, it is, we've already said it, it's like an opera. And the styles that they touch on are bigger than anything they ever wrote for the pop group. You know, it is, uh, you know, everything from Murano, which is not in every production of the show, is this uh, fun, like, it's very um, operetta, Gilbert and Sullivan-esque, oh. you oh, know? Oh, very much so. And and then you've got these epic, epic power ballads, Nobody's Side, Pity the Child, Anthem. Again, rangier than anything that Apple was doing at the time. Um, and you have this really smart recessative that doesn't just feel like, okay, well, they're singing words to music. It really feels like dramatically it propels the story forward. Yeah. Um, you know, one of my favorite songs, again, is not in every production of the show. Uh, the Soviet Machine, like, is one of my favorites. Uh, it's such a, a... That's a fascinating song. Oh, I just... And I imagine the movie version, which we should talk about in a bit. Uh, yeah. The movie version. <laughs> I just imagine lots of Russian people dancing. Lots of Russian, like, KGB men, like, dancing to it. Because it it, it should be a big dance number. Um, and, well, and in the concert version, which was partially staged, they did right. do some of that. Oh, uh, yeah, of um, course. And so we've talked about Broadway. Broadway closed very quickly and was definitely a flop. Oh, 100%. Um, and then it took like, what was it, 15 years before another major production was done? I, um, yeah, it kind of bubbled a little bit. There was a national tour. I only bring that up because Carol Lee Carmelo famously starred in it as Florence. So... Tip, tip your hat because I can only imagine what her nobody's side sounds like. Oh, but. I bet it was epic. Epic. Uh, but it took a while before the major revisals started happening. But once they started happening, it was like gangbusters because yeah. every couple years there was a new production in a new country or a new city trying to fix chess. You know, 2001 was a big moment for chess because as successful as the London production was, they never recorded a cast album. It was Mm. just the concept album, you know, which was not the full show as it was done in London. Uh, But there was a Danish tour in 2001 that was performed in English. It was a lot of English actors who did it. And they recorded for the first time the complete chess uh, cast album. And, you know, for, for those of us in the know, us chess fans, it's the one you listen to because it is, you know, beautifully done in a studio, giant orchestrations. Uh, the cast is fantastic. And, um, it's the whole London production with those two little auditions. Like, um, that was a big deal for the chess, you know, for those of us who love chess, because we finally got to hear what people had talked about every, you know, everyone was like, Oh, the London production so much better. 
we got to hear why, you know? Right. Um, well, and that one was also directed by UK fan favorite Craig Rebel Horwood, who, for those who don't know, is a judge on Strictly Come Dancing, which is the UK's version of Dancing with the Stars. Oh, I and, didn't know that. There oh, you go. Yes. I watch it all the time with my English husband. Uh, but he's he is well known for being a fabulous dancer as well as a director. And um, I can only imagine that this had some incredible dance sequences involved. Right. Well, and so then after that, you start seeing chess a lot. You know, in 2002, you get the Swedish language version. This one's interesting. Tim Rice is not involved with it, but they add more songs for Svetlana. Uh Okay. Just Bjorn and Benny. They do it with some other folks. And right. she she becomes part of the plot starting in Act One. So maybe maybe the Which Swedish production sense. is the one you <laughs> want to do. Um, but then the next year, you get the actor's fun on Broadway, uh, which right. is huge. Right, and that was a I huge mean, deal. And, oh gosh, Christina, who was in that? Everybody was in that, right? Right. I mean, Seth Rudescu famously conducted that production. Um, Adam Pascal, that's the first time we see him attached to this show. Right. Um, and then also Julia Murney. Oh my gosh. Epic. 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 Just watch it on our Twitter. <laughs> I mean, she also retweeted it. So if you're friends with her on Twitter, you know, that you know where to find it. Um, but then you also had Josh Groban attached to that at the time. Again, we see him again later. Norm Lewis, Raul Esparza, Sutton Foster, Svetlana. I mean, Every big name was attached. It's huge. It was huge. And then a couple years later, you get at the Ford Amphitheater in L.A., you know, our buddy, Matt Smadel, was, I think, the assistant musical director on this. Uh, and that's got, you know, Susan Egan and Kevin Early, Ty Taylor and Matthew Morrison. This was crazy. This was like <laughs> right before Glee. So he was just like hairsprays Matthew Morrison right. as the arbiter <laughs> in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, well, and then that leads us to the 2008 Royal Albert Hall production, which was filmed and you can watch right. pretty much everywhere now. And Warner Brothers helped produce that. Um, and so we saw this giant run up to the 2008 production, um, yeah. the concert version. And it shows and it wasn't just like random people here and there. I mean, these are big Broadway names are attached. Oh, yeah. Right. So it shows that people really wanted this to happen. People really wanted to find a way to make chess successful, even in the U S right. And make it, make it as epic as we all believe it is. Right. Um, so the 2008 Royal Albert hall concert is really fascinating. I think that it speaks to how this show is not actor proof in the sense that you need to have people who can act their faces off right to really tell this story to fill in the holes basically it's a tough one because you also need vocal pipes of steel i mean the yeah. way this the way the score is built it is i mean i no. I when adam pascal just like sits on those f's and like clips off those notes i'm I, like oh my gosh what's happening i can't I'll, I'll never forget there was there was a half a moment at in college where i was like i'm gonna sing pity the child and like you need vocal pipes of steel like... well and that was also after adam had like gone and trained and retrained his voice oh, after yeah. rent and and the craziness with that and uh you hear it you hear the work he's done and he does it with such ease and relaxation oh yeah and i was like i strive for that kind of relaxation on stage so oh, thank just... you for that <laughs> 
comes out. It's insane. And, you know, this production was so well received. I remember Tim Rice at the time saying, at least at the time, <laughs> 2008, <laughs> this is the official version of chess. We did it. We yeah. fixed it. Um, I think he's gone on to say that about different productions later. But, right. Uh, people but really, up till that point, they really thought they had fixed a lot of the issues. And people really loved this production. I mean, there was, I remember rumblings after this happened that it would come back to Broadway soon after, you know. We should probably state who was in this production if you don't know. Right. Josh Groban came back for his role as Anatoly. Of course, we just said Adam Pascal. He played Freddie. And mm-hmm. then Idina Menzel played Florence. Right. And uh, Carrie Ellis played Svetlana. And this is where that connection with David Badella comes in. Because oh, okay. he plays um, he plays Alexander, who is the Soviet. Basically, he's Anatoly second slash he is like a, a KGB officer. And so he's the one who screws over Florence, kind of, we think, and like does the deal with the Americans behind everybody's back. Um, and uh, I have to say that he is incredible when it comes to doing the comedic relief in a show and making it a subtle comedic relief, as right. well as singing in a crazy weird accent because he does it. <laughs> he does French in Aunt Juliet, and then he does Russian in this. As you do, I mean, some people are really good at it, right? He's so great. You, well, and this show needs that, you know, uh, because the I think that's one of the reasons the show didn't do so well on Broadway is that it was so dang serious. But, right. you know, when you look at it as like an opera, uh, you know, it, it needs those lighter moments. It needs the Muranos. It needs the Soviet machine. It needs <laughs> these things, you know, especially from the villainous characters. It's pretty it's pretty, you know, paint by numbers when it comes to some of these epic pop rock operas that the villainous characters do have these comedic moments to lighten Well, it. and even, like, if we're going to look at some of the other epics that came out around this time, you've got Les Mis, you've got Phantom, you've even got Miss Saigon. Right. All of them have major theatrical moments that happen in the show. Right. You know, in Phantom, you have a crashing chandelier. In Les Mis, you have the barracks and that crazy, amazing turntable situation that was why people loved going to see that show. And in Miss Saigon, you have a helicopter that flies on stage. Sure. You know, and not, this show doesn't have that. Like you said, it's intimate. It's, it is. It's intimate and it's serious. And so if you don't bring any sort of levity, and there's really very minimal, and to be completely honest, most of it comes out of nowhere. It doesn't actually seem to fit in with the storyline at right. all. Unlike like with Les Mis, you have the Tenardiers that are hilarious. Sure. You know, in Phantom, you have the two clowns that come out every once in a while to like just brighten the mood. Right. <laughs> I think that you need that when you're sitting down, especially like in the Broadway production. Opening night was four hours long. Well, that's because they took a 90 minute intermission. But that's yeah. a, another story. Well, so what I'll tell you is, is that's why I don't know if chess can work on stage. I think it needs to be a movie because what yes. chess has over... Les Mis. Well, okay, it doesn't have it over those. Les Mis should have done this as well, but we're not going to talk about Tom Hooper's brilliant conception for the Les Mis movie. To uh, be honest, I prefer the movie to the stage show. I know that's heresy. I know. 
I but mean, we can talk about that another time. We'll talk about it another time. <laughs> Chess is set in now, depending on which version you do, it's set in, you know, Murano. It's like set in basically like the German Alps. It's set right. in Bangkok. It is set in sometimes they set it in other cities. Like it is set in these places. Like I just I imagine the Golden Bangkok Ballet or whatever it's, it's yeah. that musical. It they change the name of it depending on the production. Right. But that goes into One Night in Bangkok. And I am picturing like just this breathtaking drone shot of like the clouds parting and just seeing the epic beauty of Bangkok and like going through the streets. Well, look, I've had a one night in Bangkok. I've actually had a one night in Bangkok. I and mean, that yeah. can be a story for TikTok, maybe. Oh my gosh. But, <laughs> but I wouldn't say it's breathtaking. But I will say that it is fascinating. Well, it Thailand is fascinating. itself is breathtaking, no? I mean, if you're in the regional parts. Okay. But the city of Bangkok is is a fascinating thing. Okay. I mean, it is it's a fascinating living organism is really sure. what it feels like. Um, and you're right. Cinematically, that could exist in the movie version of this show. And I, I honestly just think that if you could see the whites of people's eyes and you actually got to see the manipulation and you got to see, you know, the thought processes and what's crossing over people's faces and how they're trying to manipulate the person next to them. I mean, there's so much more you could do with a movie version and actually tell the story the way you want to tell it. Right. Right. And I think and not have to worry about things. And from what I've read, that's a lot of what I think Michael Bennett was trying to do. It's it's mm. literally one of the saddest things in theater that we never got to see fully what Michael Bennett wanted to do with the show, because one of the reasons for all those television screens, those video screens, is he wanted to get in their faces to show how much the media was manipulating not only these chess players, but the Cold War. And that's yeah. not apparent at all. And when you when you hear about what Trevor Nunn did with it, but um, almost well, like even a, the concert version, which had cameras on them. Right. But like not I, utilized as a character. You know, yeah. like, and I will I again, I'm going to go back to this. If you don't hire people who can act. Right. This show really doesn't make sense because nope. I I don't know what your point of view is. And if I can't understand, you may sing beautifully, but if I can't understand you. Right. Why am I listening? Right. Right. Um, and so and it's the thing I love about musical theater in comparison to opera. Right. And I'm I'm all for a sung through show. I mean, I've said it a million times. Hamilton is one of my all time favorite shows and it is completely sung through. Oh, absolutely. But I understand every single word that comes out of their mouth and I understand their point of view on that word. Right. It is so the work on it is so specific and that's what needs to happen with this show. Well, so I'll bring up something difficult because now I think we can kind of analyze what we think doesn't work about. Right. Because sure. we've talked a lot of a lot of history on this so far. Mm -hmm. Um. Do you think as brilliant as these lyrics and this music is, do you think they're constructed in a way that makes it too difficult for an actor to convey what needs to be conveyed? I do think that there are certain moments like that in the show. Yes. Okay. I think that there's not space for moments to happen. Like a prime example is the Mountain Duet, mm -hmm. which is really the first time that Florence and Anatoly get a moment alone together and ultimately should be the moment where we see them fall in love. And then we start rooting for them. And it's beautiful. The duet is beautiful. And I've sung it in cabarets with people before. But there is no space written into the music to have the moment where you don't know what to say to each other. There isn't a moment of silence where you can have 
that moment where you connect and the audience connects with you. Absolutely. Because they go in and out of that song uh, between talking to each other and then going into soliloquies. So with that, you need a moment where you really see them make the choice that this is someone who they feel an uncanny connection to. Well, and I, I definitely feel that is a gorgeous song. I mean, mm. I, it's one of them. And whether it's on the mountain or the terrace, they change the name. Wherever uh, it is. Wherever <laughs> it is in the world. Uh, it's beautiful, but it's not conversational. And I think because it was composed for an album and it was not composed to dramatically, you know, for stage actors to be performed, you know, as they were writing it. I think you miss that because I think of, you know, stuff that sadly to bring them up. And this will also tie in a little bit Phantom of the Opera, which is opening on Broadway around the same time. Andrew Lloyd Webber, you look at something like All I Ask of You, which is very melodic because Andrew Lloyd Webber writes beautifully melodic material. But the actors do get to breathe there. I mean, it's kind of, that song kind of is actor proof. You, you, all I ask of you can have two not great actors singing it, and you get the point. You get Raul, you get, you know, Christine, and you get it. Like, yeah. it is, it is beautiful. It's not, I'm not saying it needs to be talk singing, but it is. Yeah, it, it's built in to the music, how the audience should feel about something. Right. And I don't necessarily know that you need to always speak spoon feed right. to someone but i do think that you need to allow for moments of acting yeah. and whether that's in the music direction saying don't hold out this note right please for the love of god don't sing these words right speak them speak them on pitch um and i think that some of that comes from the finessing and the working as a creative team yeah right um, and that's a big part of it. Um, are there, what other parts in the show do you think really fall to that? Like really speak to that problem? Well, you know, I think one that goes to the other side, cause it's incredibly conversational is you have a song like one night in Bangkok that I don't right. know works on the show, uh, yeah. but because it was a literal hit on the radio in the United States, you can't not do it. And there have been productions that have tried and people like are not happy about it because it's like they, they've got stuck where you have to have something happen in Bangkok in this musical right. because the song is this hit on the radio. And I don't think it's a bad song. I mean, but. It, well, here's the interesting thing, because I went and read a couple of different synopses of the original concept. Right. Okay. And so the terrace duet or mountain duet, whichever way we're going. Sure. Right. Is happens because Freddie is supposed to be at that meeting. Right. She even says it in the lyric, right? Where she's like, he wanted this meeting. So surely he's going to show up and I don't have to be here awkwardly with this other human. Right. Like she literally says those words. And then Freddie doesn't show up. And in the original concept, he doesn't show up because he gets drunk and goes out for a party and a night on the town in Bangkok, which I can tell you from my one night in Bangkok that it that happens. is a real thing. It's real. And you have no concept of time. And <laughs> so... We'll make a hard man humble. Um, I, yeah. Um, <laughs> and so... Um, anyways, so that was the reason One Night in Bangkok existed in the concept album is because it was the reason he didn't show up to the meeting that he asked for. And that made sense to me. But then when they did the big change, Bangkok doesn't happen. <laughs> Yes. Until act two, when they're in Bangkok. <laughs> yeah. 
So um, it doesn't make sense to put it after yeah, it's slash just, during the Mountain Duet. It's it's just it's a song you're stuck with. I mean, it, it has to be there. And um, you you become then a slave to making this song work in the show because it's so famous. Yeah. And um, luckily, the other song that charted on the on the radio, I, I think, is beautiful. I, I know him so well, I think is Ugh. that one. Again, it's not talk singing, but these two women get their point across. In fact, even if you change the plot and how these women are supposed to feel about each other, that song totally works. You know, it totally works. Totally. And you know, works. what's interesting is after watching the concert uh, right. version, I went and I wanted to see who else has sung the song. Right. Right. And one of them is Whitney Houston. And there's this beautiful video that we'll find and we'll post on the website of her and her mom singing it at one of her concerts. And neither, I mean, Whitney Houston is Whitney Houston, but I will tell you that that woman is first and foremost a storyteller Uh and her mom barely sings the song, but it is the most stunning version I've heard because I know exactly how they feel. They're relating to each other in the concert. The two of them weren't in the same space, basically, like they'd been directed to completely face out and not reference each other. And I think that's to the detriment of the song, of the piece. Yeah, well, it depends on the version of the show. Sometimes it's literally an argument between the two of them. Sometimes it's Florence is in this world. Yeah. And Svetlana is in this world. It it depends on the book you use, you know? Yeah. I mean, for my money, I would rather them be interacting with each other in well, some think, way. Because yeah. that kind of relationship between women does exist. Right. And the way that you handle that is unique and hard and difficult and complicated. Oh, so absolutely. don't shy away from it, you know? Absolutely. Well, and by them having more interaction, it fuels why Svetlana should sing someone else's story about the situation, you know, because uh, she needs reason to do it, which it makes sense for her to do it, but she needs like legit reasoning. I think that leads to one of the biggest problems with chess is that ultimately it wants to be about the Cold War and it wants to be about this and even wants to be about chess, but it's really about the relationships between these like six people. And it doesn't do that well enough, I don't think, because it's trying to do seven other things on top of it. And all of that can be a backdrop to it. But I think that core, these, you know, six people uh, and their motivations, that needs to be cleaned up. And I think that um, on top of that, you know, we need a clear protagonist and an antagonist. And it can be, it doesn't need to be like a super bad guy villain. It can still be Freddy, who I think is who you want to paint as the antagonist. But even he could be humanized more because he's kind of like this weird sociopath monster. Well, and that's one of the reasons why Pity the Child exists. But I think you need that earlier in the show. Right. Putting it in the second act, we've already lost him. Like, we already don't care. And then we're like, we don't care that you had a bad childhood, dude. Yeah, You're I'm a really like, awful care. person. Like, exactly. If you put that at the top as like part of his introduction to the story, I think that you have something, right? right. You have something to play off of. You have somewhere to go. Right. Um, well, and I think there's so much. So this show is so much of the 80s. But mm. we, we didn't know things about things like autism and being on the spectrum back then. I mean, there is an argument that Freddie is very much... On the spectrum. Um, oh, on yes. the spectrum. He does not have good human relationships with any human beings. And um, that's no, something... No, I totally could see him being someone right. um, where everything is literal. Everything is matter of fact. Right. 
you know, and I think that completely makes sense. So I don't I don't know if there is a modern look at that character and those storylines, because if you read it that way, not that it sympathizes with with him, but it definitely humanizes it a little bit. Yeah. Of just how awful he is to Florence and to just other people he interacts with in the show. Right. Yes, completely. I, I completely agree with that thought. And honestly, I I know that the big choral moments are really a part of the score and a part of the reason why people love this score. Sure. But I wonder what happens if really you only have the six characters on stage. And you and, do it like a chamber musical? Uh, I mean, maybe. And then the stage is black with a chessboard and minimalism. And it's them playing chess with each other. Oh, right. Like that's that makes sense to me. Interesting. Um, and then maybe during the match, chess one and two, right? Those um, musical moments. It is about a dance. It's about um, creative staging. OK. Um, in terms. I mean, very much like Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. Right. There, there is basically a dream ballet in that play. Oh, I and would be fascinated to see with what... actors, right? Oh, and I, I would think that something like that immediately gives urgency and a reason for the show, and and something for the audience to visually latch onto, right? Which also leads us to the fact that they've now greenlit Queen's Gambit as a musical. Yeah. So what does that mean for chess? <laughs> like, yes. What does that mean? Because people are very heated. There are some people yes. who are like, like. A, who don't even know who chess is. And so or A, they're just who, excited to see a musical version of Queen's Gambit. Yeah, they're just excited. Then you have B, who are people are like, screw that chess thing. Queen's Gambit. Let's just start all over again. Right. This is the chess <laughs> musical we want. But then you have C, which is a lot of people who are like, we don't need another chess musical. We already got a good one. Let's just <laughs> fix that one. So people are right opinionated about this but it could well and that's exciting honestly i love that i love that people have opinions um, right. about what what they love and what's good and what's bad and and that's what makes art wonderful and unique sure and i love that but having watched queen's gambit and being a big fan of the show i don't know how that particular story works on stage Okay. I don't know it. So this is, you're going to have to like fill me in for two seconds. Okay, cool, cool. So it's very cerebral. Um, okay. The lead character, the female, she, the first few episodes, she doesn't say a whole lot. Okay. It's more her observing and not wanting to be a part of things and just wanting to play chess and okay. not wanting to interact with people. Right. Very much like Freddie is kind sure. of set up to be right. And so she gets taught at a very young age, at like 12, I think, maybe younger, um, by the janitor in the group home that she oh. is part of because she's an orphan. Um, so the janitor, she goes, she hates being with the other girls. And it's just like, oh, these people are crazy. I hate this. Um, and so she learns chess from the janitor because okay. she doesn't want to do the other group activities. Right. And she becomes a prodigy. And so she ends up getting adopted by um, a couple where the mother wanted to adopt. The father was just trying to appease the mother. This is all taking place in the 60s, mind you. So um, habits are very much a part of the family dynamic um, in terms of alcoholism, pills. Uh, and 
so that kind of all plays into it. But she becomes this prodigy and starts going to every chess tournament around the world. And her adoptive mother goes with her and they become like, you know, band of thieves together. And like they they take on the world and and then spoiler alert, the mom passes away and she's on her own. But she has made friends with these different male chess players along the way who she's basically beaten all of them right. but they all in a in one way or another fall in love with her as a person and want to be there for her and so she goes on to play the russians like that's the ultimate right because in chess the russians are the ones to beat because right. they're so great um and so through that there is also the espionage thing that comes up and when she goes to russia the state department's like oh you can't just go right um, and we have to do this because we think the guy's going to want to defect and all this stuff. So it's similar to it's got chess, the musicals. Chess, but yeah, but I think that there is a visual that is used in the TV show that I think that they will definitely translate to stage, which is where when she takes uh, these pills, I'm not completely sure what they are, but they're psychotics, basically. And she when she gets high, she can lay in her bed. And she sees the chess pieces basically come down off the ceiling and she starts playing chess with herself in her okay. head. Right. So I think that that is a visual that they will definitely use um, and I think will be really effective on stage. My concern with it being a musical is I don't know, like, how does this character sing? Are we going to go to a contemporary like mezzo soprano that doesn't belt because based on the character that they've created in the TV show and the book. Right. She's not that kind of person. Like she's her own person and she doesn't care what anyone else thinks. Right. But she's not overly vocal and she's not going to yell at you. And she just literally will just walk away from you. Well, it sounds like the prime opportunity for a smart team to build yeah. that into the character where maybe vocally she's one thing until she finds her own or she has these fantasy moments where it's different than, these real moments and things like that. I mean, already the story you've described is a stronger story than Chess the Musical. <laughs> uh, so that makes sense. And it has these fantastical elements that Chess the Musical does not. That's the one thing that big thing that Chess doesn't have going for it is it doesn't have these fantasy moments that really do translate well to musical yeah. theater. Um, but, uh, you know, I would say that a musical about Chess, regardless, even though this one seems to have more going for it on the... <laughs> Um, what it's based on and it's it's tough because two people sitting down playing chess is not musical and it's not dynamic on stage no right um and so i'm i'm just interested to see where there are the moments where it the drama becomes so much that we have to sing right that's right. why we sing in musical theater is because whatever our feelings are become too much that we can't speak anymore and we need to sing so right. i i don't know where that exists in the way that the story is currently written. I mean, they didn't do it in chess. I mean, uh, all things positive with chess itself, there's never a moment where they're sitting at the table singing. Like, there's never a moment where they're physically playing chess and it gets musicalized. I mean, there's ballet around them. There's music around them. But it's you never get the height of the drama of a game of chess. And the real chess, the musical, was never... They never musicalized that. So which could I think was a missed opportunity because you could definitely have had those moments of angst between the two men. Right. 
through playing the game of chess, especially the one where Anatoly beats Freddy. Yeah. Because the you kind of see it in the in the concert version, the mm-hmm. way that it's staged, that it is like it tears Freddy apart. And if that right. had been vocalized in some way, oh, that would have been like an epic moment, right? Well, that and, would and, have been a barricade moment. Well, and there are musicals that take moments like that and have done it. I think two really great examples come to mind. Spelling Bee, the pot to do at the end of the show. It's <laughs> like there's nothing musical about a spelling bee, you know, but right. they take this brilliant moment of Barfay and, um, oh gosh, what's her name? The character's name. Oh, Olive. Olive, yes. Hi. Uh, they take that and it's musicalized. It's, it's, it's mm-hmm. brilliant there. I think of bringing up your favorite musical review, Diamonds. <gasps> Not your song, though. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> what You'd Call a Dream by Car- Craig Carnelia oh. is very, I mean, everyone says, ah, uh, but that's a brilliant song of, of, of a kid at bat, right? I love like, it. I love it so much. It's like, it's that moment of you're at bat and you're about to, to, to hit the ball but the the world stops and this character gets a soliloquy. You know what I mean? To and it's a ballad. It's a quiet ballad. It could be a ballad, but like you have to do that. If it's chess is a sport and how are you going to musicalize right. the actual moments of this sport? Yeah. So maybe Queen's Gambit will will tap into some things that, that they haven't tapped into chess yet. You know, let them do Queen's Gambit on Broadway. I think chess still has a place in this world. And I think we both agree that the next step, maybe not a Broadway revival, um, they should just make a movie of it, right? Completely. I think that makes the most sense. And so I'm praying for that. Hallelujah. (laughs) Well, everybody, that's our show. Thanks for listening to My Favorite Flop. I'm Christina. And I'm Bobby. And uh, yes, thank you for listening to us cover all 64 squares of a chessboard (laughs) on this episode today. I think this is probably going to end up being one of our longest ones. Uh, I don't think people will be mad about it. No, people love chess and and we love them, right? Uh, And speaking of loving them, uh, how can they show us some love back, Christina, to all of our... Oh, please find us on all the social media. We are on TikTok where you get to have story time with Christina. Story time with Christina. <laughs> story time with Christina. We're going to come up with a better name. And uh, and then we're also on Instagram. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Um, all at My Favorite Flop. And then we, of course, have our website, www.myfavoriteflop.com, where you get to see Bobby's Cabinet of Mysteries. I know. I might, I might start introducing these video clips. We'll see what happens. Oh, know. I'm so excited. Uh, And speaking of our social media, that's where you're going to find all the clues, right? Clues for our next episode, because we have one more episode, episode 12, before we go on an intermission. Okay, Bobby, what's our clue for our next episode? The clue for episode 12 is this. Bing Crosby produced this Tony Award winning show. I mean, that could be a lot of things. That's it. That's what we're going with. (laughs) I love Bing Crosby. Um, so go to Google, see all the shows that he produced and try to pick out the one uh, that totally flopped on Broadway so that you can DM us and let us know what the answer is. Don't spoil it for everybody else, though. You can also find our previous episodes that are super fun and exciting everywhere that you 
listen to podcasts. Oh, absolutely. And I mean literally everywhere. Spotify, Google, uh, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and the big one, Apple Podcasts, which is also where you can click that little subscribe button, which is free. You don't have to pay for it. Uh, And write us a five-star review, which helps lots of other amazing people just like you find us in the rankings uh, so that there's even more floppalicious love going out into this world I like to call our fans floppaholics. I think that's going to stick. Ooh, floppaholics. I love that. Oh my gosh, we're going to have to put that on a t-shirt, Christina. Speaking of a t-shirt, don't forget to get your merch at intermission. Oh. That's right. During the break, we've got merch coming. Oh, there's definitely breaking gonna, news. There's definitely going to be a shirt that says "Absolutely." <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us, and make sure to join us again in two weeks for episode twelve, our last one before intermission. Uh, which, again, I'm, this is not even a clue, but I'm just going to tell you it's our Tony Award special because we're all sadly waiting for the Tony Awards to still happen <laughs> from last year. Uh, yes, but we're doing it for when. The Tony Awards would have been this was a normal year. Um, And Christina, do you have any parting words for our listeners today? Be like Elphaba, brush your teeth, and defy cavities. Oh my God. God. Okay. Bye. Bye.